0: Howdy. Welcome to 127 on the mic. This sermon was recorded by our college pastor, John Davison, as we walk through the book of Daniel on Sunday nights here at 127. We believe that God has something unique to teach us and how the book of Daniel points us to how Jesus is the greater Daniel. If you have any questions, feel free to check out our website, which is fbcbryan.org slash college. Thank you. Amen. Yeah. Y'all good? The lights are going to come on, you're going to grab your Bible, go to Daniel chapter 2. we got a lot of work to do, a ton of verses. Uh, It'll be miraculous if we get through all of it, but we're going to go after this right quick. So as you're turning there, I'm going to read Daniel chapter 1 verse 17 as a reminder, if you weren't with us last week, just to kind of highlight what was going on here in, in verse 17. God gave these four young men knowledge and understanding in every kind of literature and wisdom. Daniel also understood visions and dreams of every kind. And so, so they're pulled out of their homeland. They're, they're sort of kidnapped and, and they're taken into, uh, into Babylon and they go through the whole, like, I'm not going to eat the king's food. I'm just going to have vegetables and water and you're going to see that I'm stronger and they come out to be stronger. And then, and then they step into the space as like the king's servants. They're, they're there and this is what God gives them. He gives them the ability, he gives them understanding, gives them knowledge, every kind of literature and wisdom, and that he can understand, Daniel, visions and dreams. And then that ability comes alive really in chapter 2 in a pretty incredible way that saves Daniel's lives, but also saves the lives of a lot of other people. And here's the big picture of Daniel chapter 2 we're just going to put up on the screen for us to, to understand, that God is going to put you or he's going to create impossible situations in your life to reveal his greatness. He's just going to create impossible situations you look at and go, I can't, there's no chance, this will not happen, and he does that so that he can reveal his greatness. It's just the theme that's going to echo through chapter 2. Before we jump into this, I want to highlight a couple things that are going to happen in the next seven chapters or so, and then we will run through this. Because there's a, there's a, num- a number of interesting characteristics, really, in chapter 2 that that enhance our understanding of what God is trying to teach us in this space and, and kind of what he does. There's this thing, it's a, a parallelism in, in biblical speak, it's called uh, chiastic, which means that like this equals this and this equals this and this equals this and it kind of draws a ladder where the first rung and the last rung are the same and then the second and, and so on. And so this is what this looks like. The first one in chapter two, there's a dream about four earthly kingdoms and God's kingdom. That's, that's what's happening there in chapter 2. But if you were to go all the way to the end of chapter 7, there is a vision about four earthly kingdoms and God's kingdom. He, he connects it. There's the, the rung, the, the chiastic structure of Scripture is fixing to happen. If you go to chapter 3, There's a story about Jews being faithful in the face of death. We're going to read that and kind of the result of a position that was given to three of Daniel's amigos. And and then what happens there if you go to chapter 6? There's a story about a Jew who is faithful in the face of death. This is Daniel. Something else that happens. You've probably heard it if you've been in kids ministry before. In chapter 4, there's a story about a a royal hubris who is really humbled. In chapter 5, there's a story about a royal hubris who is humbled. God is writing a story through the book of Daniel that's helping us point somewhere. But there's an interesting thing that happens also. As you're reading through this in verse 4, we're going to read it again here in a second once you see this. The Chaldeans spoke to the king. And then I don't know if your Bible says this. Mine has an open parenthesis and it says Aramaic begins here. And then a closed parenthesis and then it starts. And we can go back and forth about why this is. But, but we have Hebrew language all the way up until this verse halfway through verse 4, and then it flips a switch and goes, Aramaic. The, the shift has long puzzled scholars with not a real big consensus on this, but Andrew Hill ri- writes this about it. He says, it would only be logical for the wise men to communicate with a language common to all, since the wise men are a racially and an ethnically diverse group. And so if he's correct, which most people believe that that's the, the idea of what's happening here, if he's correct about this, then we have to understand what God is, is really doing here. God's impossible situation in this place, and that it, it continues to happen over and over again, is there to help reveal His greatness to the Gentile nations. It's there to help other nations understand what is happening. That's why there's a language switch. It goes from Hebrew, which is like the language of God's chosen people, into a common language, Aramaic, so that other people can understand the story. This should be our mindset as we begin to run through this passage of Scripture. As God is doing these incredible things that are easily described as just really impossible situations, he's doing that to reveal his greatness. But he's he's not doing that just to reveal his greatness to like me and you and to the church. He's doing that to reveal his greatness to the nations okay his greatness is going to be really clearly revealed to the believer when you die all right now that for us sometimes like death is a sad thing and i understand that it should be but also the clearer picture of heaven the clearer picture of jesus the clear picture of god the clear picture of all of that some of your crazy questions are going to be answered all of those things is what we should long for we're going to see his greatness on full display our impossible situations now or so that others can see his greatness on full display. Okay? So hold on to that. So here we go. Let's just start running through this. Chapter 2, verse 1. In the second year of his reign, okay, he's been there two years, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams that troubled him and sleep deserted him. So the king gave orders to summon the magicians, the mediums, the sorcerers, the Chaldeans to tell the king his dreams. When they came and stood before the king, he said to them, I've had a dream, and I'm anxious to understand it. Okay, so he sets the stage here. Now, here, it it takes a little bit of a turn. The, The Chaldeans, these are the wise men. This doesn't include Daniel and his friends at this point, but they spoke to the king. May the king live forever. Tell your servant the dream, and we'll give you the interpretation. That is the logical response. I've had a dream. I'm not going into that speech. It's weird. I've, I've had a dream, and, and I need you to interpret it. Okay, tell me about this dream, and I will help you understand it. The king replied to the Chaldeans, my word is final. Okay, this is important. It's okay, what he's fixing to say. My word is final. If you don't tell me the dream and its interpretation, hey, I, I've had a dream, and I need you to interpret it. Okay, tell me about it. No, you tell me the dream and what it means if you don't tell me that, you will be torn limb from limb and your houses will be made a garbage dump. Okay, the king's final word is, listen guys, if, if you can't tell me what I dreamed, which is a pretty unbelievable skill to have, and what it means, I will have you ripped apart and I will turn your house into basically a dunghill. All, all of the refuge from here, we're just going to scoop it onto your house. Like, how insulting is that? Not only am I going to kill you, but then we're just going to cover your house in poop. That's what he said. It's, it's an unbelievable response, almost like it's an impossible thing. Verse six, but if you make the dream and its interpretation known to me, you'll receive gifts, a reward, and a great honor from me. So make the dream and its interpretation known to me. What, what do you do with this? This is their response. They answered a second time. May the king tell the dream to his servants. They just completely ignored the king saying, this is my final word. Do this or you'll get ripped apart. We'll turn your house into the the refuge dump. May the king tell his dream to the servants and we will make known the interpretation. The king replied, I know for certain that you are trying to gain some time. You're trying to stall here because you see that my word is final. If you don't tell me the dream, there is one decree for you. You have conspired to tell me something false or fraudulent until the situation changes. He's like, you're just, you're trying to stall. You're going to kind of just fill my mind with things maybe that I want to hear until the situation changes. So instead you have to, you have to tell me this dream halfway through that. So tell me the dream and I will know that you can give me its interpretation. It's a, it's a pretty solid card to play if these are the wisest men in the kingdom to be like, hey, if, if you're so wise, then why don't you just go ahead and tell me the dream and then tell me the interpretation so I know that you're not playing a trick on me. Verse 10, Chaldeans answered the king, no one on earth can make known what the king requests. They're like a different kind of prophet. That is go, that they just go ahead and tell them that there's no one on this planet that can do what you're asking. We're going to see the answer to that. No one on earth can make known what the king requests. Consequently, no king, however great and powerful, has ever asked anything like this of any magician, medium, or Chaldean. No one on earth can do this, and no king has ever asked this. What are you you doing? Verse 11, what the king is asking is so difficult that no one can make it known to him except the gods whose dwelling is not with the mortals. I like that they're speaking some things that they don't know about Daniel, and his guys whose God dwells with them. Verse 12, because of this, the king became violently angry and gave orders to destroy all of the wise men of Babylon. The decree was issued that the wise men were to be executed and they searched for Daniel and his friends to execute them. They're not there. The king is so mad that he's like, we're just gonna kill them all. Go find all of the wise men in any position and kill them. This is how angry he is, and so we kind of expect this, hear me, like unbelievers in this type of space, when they don't get what they want, they should probably respond with threats and with anger, and this is what we're seeing come alive right there. But what is Daniel's response to this? We see the angry response from the unbeliever, verse 14. Then Daniel responded with tact and discretion to Arioch the captain of the king's guard. This is the guy who's responsible for rounding these people up and taking them to the executioner. He had gone out to execute the wise men of Babylon. Verse 15. He asked Ariok, the king's officer, why is the decree from the king so harsh? Is the king okay? Did he wake up on the wrong side of the... bed? What is going on with the king? Why is he responding in this way? Then Ariok explained the situation to Daniel. He goes through the whole thing. So Daniel went and asked the king... Like, Daniel's dumb. Hey, uh, okay, so the king's mad. He said to kill all the wise men, which I am one of those. Okay, can I go see him? I, I just want to walk into his chamber. I understand he's upset. Maybe I'm just going to go poke him a little bit. He's like, hey, you're a lion. Let's see if I can make you roar a little bit louder. let see if I can irritate you. What is it? He goes into the king's chamber to give him some time and ask the king to give him some time so that he could give the king the interpretation. Hey, I, I know you're upset, but uh, and, and I know I'm just a teenager uh, that, that was kidnapped from my home. I've been exiled here, I've been conquered, I'm a, I'm a slave. Uh, I'm basically a man marked for death at this point because you've already given the decree to kill me, but I'm going to just walk up in there and be like, hey, can, can we have a little bit more time? And, and I don't think if Daniel went in there hot, going like, hey, uh, I need you to listen to me, stupid king. I have this God who's so much bigger and better than you are. Uh, he, he belittles you and your little peasant kingdom here. Um, he will tell you the dream. You just give me a little bit of time. I don't think that was his response, was it? He probably went in there and said, hey, um, a king, I, I understand that you're upset, But I believe that my God will come through for you if you will, but just give us a little bit of time. For some reason, he has the king's favor. He has a lot of the the understudies of the king. He has their favor. And this is, for some reason, we get verse 17. He should have been killed, but verse 17 happens. Then Daniel went to his house. He told his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah about the matter, urging them to ask if you write in your Bible, the God of the heavens, you can just circle it. My Bible, it's circled in green because it's just one of those things that just pushes me like to go because he's going to continue to call him God of the heavens all throughout Daniel. If you want just to keep going, you can find it over and over again. I think it's four or five times just in chapter 2 where he's saying this. He's urging them to ask the God of the heavens for mercy concerning this mystery so Daniel and his friends would not be destroyed with the rest of the Babylonians' wise men. So what do they do right off the bat? Here is the response. Daniel responds in like wisdom and faith. He he walks into the king and with faith, he says, my God can do this. I hope that my God comes through, but I'm just letting you know, king, that my God can do this. And then he goes to his friends and he just responds in prayer in the midst of the impossible situations that God is going to create in us, this is your response. This is always your response. And I'm going to go ahead and push us to contend that even outside of the impossible situations, even in the really good situations, you respond in prayer. You take like your mind and shift it up to, to God's face. I, I, I believe this to be true, and I don't know why God stirred this in our hearts so long ago, but when we started just like stopping in the service... And turning our attention to the Shema, which, which is just a simple prayer to put God in his right place and kind of reset our mind, God has just stirred that in our hearts in really, really cool ways. And as our ministry is really focused on that, it's, it's not really a magic formula, it's just something that God has commanded us to do, and we're gonna keep doing it. As we've hit pause, I believe that God just delights in the prayers and the praise of his children, and he responds well to that. And so even in the really good times and in the terrible times, if you would just hit pause and go, hey God, It's the greatest thing. And and those of you that have been in our ministry for a long time know this about me. I have to set up things all throughout my day to remind me to pray. And so you'll see me as I'm teaching, my alarm on my watch will go off. It just vibrates. It's not a beep beep because that would drive me crazy. It goes off and I'll just pause it and I'll hit that button right there. It happens every Sunday morning at 1027 because my wife's birthday is October 27th. And so I'm up there and I'm teaching. And as I'm teaching you, that happens. And in my mind, I go, hey, God, would you just be near to my wife? I just start thinking these things. And so some of you, you'll come to me with stuff and you'll go, hey, I I really, like I'm struggling in this area and my response to you is, what's your birthday? Because that's my commitment at that point. I put it in my watch and every time that goes off, your name pops up and that prayer request goes off. And I go, okay, I'm praying for this person at this time. And it doesn't matter what I'm doing, I can stop and pray. and I can interrupt even when I'm teaching, like it reminds me that the Lord is near to her and to just be lifting her up. God delights in the prayers and the praise of his children. Like I believe this. Everyone believes that prayer is important. My goofy kids the other day, I walked in and they're watching the 9-11 documentary, which if you've never watched that, I know some of you aren't like 9-11 kids anymore. I, I was in college when it happened, and so it's, it's near to me, and there was footage I hadn't seen in that spot. There's a lot of things that were happening in this documentary that made disturbed my affections. Our boys, like our house is silent for a couple hours, which never happens. They're watching this in awe and wonder. And the response to the American people when it happened was to flood churches Okay, the attendance rate of New York Catholic churches right after 9-11 went up 800%. So much so that they couldn't hold people, why? Because people knew that prayer was important. I just gotta run to something bigger than me. I don't even know what it is, but I'm going there. But there's a difference, hear me, there's a difference between believing that prayer is important and believing that prayer is essential. There's a difference between going like, oh, something bad happened, I think that I should do this, Versus what Daniel's response is, is his understanding that if things aren't laid before God, they're not going to happen. I've been given the gift, in verse 17, to understand visions and dreams of every kind, and I'm still going to run to the Father and go, without your help, this doesn't happen. And so it's a shift in the Christian's mind from going that prayer is important to the fact that prayer is essential. And this is what Daniel puts on display for us. The lives of Daniel, the lives of his friends, the lives of the wise men in Babylon, they're all at stake if God doesn't show up. And what does he do? He prays, and I love this. This is such a good formula for college students because you'll eat this up. Verse 18, urging them to ask the God of the heavens for mercy concerning this mystery so Daniel and his friends would not be destroyed with the rest of the Babylonian wise men. There's a side note here I want you to highlight. Why do they care about these other wise men? Because even in difficult situations, they're still missional. They still love people. They still have a deep care for people that aren't even of them. They're not even their people. And they still care for them. Just a missional side note. Sorry. Verse 19. The mystery was then revealed to Daniel in a vision at night. The language there basically means that when Daniel went to sleep, he got the answer. So this is what he did. It's a good formula for you. Run to God in prayer, go to bed. You're like, amen. All right, if you're running to him in prayer about algebra and like how you need like the Lord's miraculous hand upon you to get like a passing grade, maybe it should be study. But this was lay it before God because there is literally nothing I can do about this. The, the king is asking for me to tell him his dream and then interpret it. God, only you can do this. I'm laying it before your feet. And then I'm going to rest. Then I'm going to sleep. I think that rest comes from the fact that Daniel knows that his God can. Mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision at night. And Daniel praised the God of the heavens. Circle it up. And he declared. This is important. He prays. He rests in that prayer that only God can. I love that. And then he jumps into worship. He gets the answer. And then we see like this really cool song that he writes. May the name of God be praised forever and ever for wisdom and power belong to him. He changes the times and the seasons. He removes kings and he establishes kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals the deep and hidden things. He knows what's in the darkness and light dwells with him. I offer thanks and praise to you, God of my fathers, because you have given me wisdom and power and now you have let me know what we asked of you. For you have let us know the king's mystery. Man, this, this bro worships, and I, I love this song. If you're just wanting to memorize scripture, man, just memorize this song and just run after God in this. And, I mean, he connects so many just really deep things in this space. But as he responds in praise, he, he really brings out two ideas that echo really throughout all of the minor prophets. But Daniel highlights this really well. These two ideas are this, that God is absolutely sovereign. He's just absolutely sovereign. He's, he's absolutely sovereign over, over everything. He's sovereign over the nations. He's sovereign over his decisions. He's sovereign over what he knows. He's sovereign over what he's going to do. He's just sovereign. And the second one is that God alone gives revelation. He is sovereign and he alone gives revelation. This is the center of chapter two and everything that really is to follow. And he praises the God of the heavens it's such an important word there like daniel didn't go and like try to look in some crystal ball he didn't look at his tarot cards <laughs> to try to figure out what the king's dream was he just ran to the god of the heavens and and in the midst of babylon that's full of all of these pagan gods for him to just continually highlight in their language in aramaic the god of the heavens is so unbelievably important and then he brings in this really theologically deep, rich understanding of God as he walks through this. And so let's look at it. May the name of God be praised forever and ever. He's just saying the only way that that happens is if my God is eternal. God, you are eternal for wisdom and power belong to you. You are omniscient because you're eternal. You're all knowing and you're all powerful. He changes the times and the season. He's he's sovereign over the weather. He's sovereign over the nations what he removes kings and he establishes kings this is why I don't really get very political because God's gonna put whoever he wants to be president in that spot anyway and he can tear them down if he wants to his glory and he can build them up for his glory so I'm okay with it all right I will take some political stances on some things that we should fight for biblically but some of your stickers offend some people okay um, sorry he gives wisdom to the wise he gives gifts of wisdom to people of knowledge to people he gives knowledge to those who have understanding those are all gifts from him he reveals the deep and hidden things he's the god of revelation he knows what's in the darkness and light dwells with him we could connect that to new testament he just contends with sin i offer thanks and praise to you the god of my fathers i love this god you've been faithful You've been faithful to my father and to his father's father and father, father, father. You just keep going. You're just faithful in all of those spaces because you have given me wisdom and power. And now you have let me know what we have asked. You just answer prayer. Sometimes I like the answer. Sometimes I don't. But you answer prayer. You've revealed the king's mystery. And this mystery is important because as we understand this mystery we will see that it's God's power put on display for, from verse 24 all the way through the end so that the nations would respond to him. Now really quick, we see this prayer and we see this response in praise, but I wanna do a, just a quick two minute thing about prayer that we have to grasp. We teach on prayer, we're gonna teach on prayer again in October um, and the importance of that, especially on Sunday morning, but I, but I want you to see this. There's a priority that you have to hold up in prayer. I talked about the essential nature of it, but you just need to make prayer a priority in your life. In times of crisis, pray. In times of blessing, pray. Like what Daniel asked for extra time from the king. Apparently the king granted it because in between 16 and 17, Daniel's still alive. Now, Daniel had a couple things going for him. He was smarter. He was 10 times smarter than any other man in the kingdom. He could have said, hey, I need a little extra time just to figure out how I'm going to do this. I needed a little extra time because I'm really smart. You've already given me that title, just to maybe formulate a plan using some of my governmental power and authority that I have. I've been with you for a year. I've kind of figured out some systems and I'm really smart. Maybe I can just engineer a way that we can get around this. I'll build a dream machine, all right? And just whatever he was going to do. He didn't do that. He knew that he was smart. He knew that he had some power as one of the king's men and he just said, I'm just gonna pray. It's just essential. I just have to go pray. This crisis, there's a lot of other options. We walk in this. We think we have options. We think you are smart. We think you are powerful. We think your parents have enough money. We think we have resources. But instead, he just turns to God. He chose prayer as his first line of defense and his only response. Prayer was a priority. Um, And in that, we can see this lesson. You ever have the uh, I cannot moment? where something happens in your life and it can be, it can be just something goofy or it can be something just completely tragic, where you look at it and you go, there is nothing I can do about this situation. I'm in a gigantic, I cannot moment. It's only gonna be the Lord's hand intervening in my life that something happens. These are what I call, but God moments. We see that all throughout scripture. When you look there, it's in the Psalms, it's, but God will redeem um, in Acts, but God raised him from the dead in Romans 5, 8, but God proves his own love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, important verse, 1 Corinthians, but God is faithful, Ephesians 2, 4, but God who's rich in mercy, like you continue to see those things that are tied to us not being able to, we're dead in our trespasses and sins, but God, this is kind of a but God moment where he says, nothing can happen, I'm going to run to God, and he is going to reveal. And here's just that lesson that I want you to see. When the bottom falls out, you don't think that you can do anything. Your natural response, but what can become a trained response also for you, is just to run to God. When everything falls apart, you just run to God. And when you do so, it's going to require a couple things. And here's what I wrote down. We should get into the habit of confessing our need to God early, not late. It doesn't say that Daniel gathered his friends together and said, hey, we're pretty smart, let's figure this thing out. No, we can't. God can. Let's ask him to. Right off the bat, confess your need for God to do that early, and the more quickly that you understand that, then the more rapid your response is going to be to God. Like, it's just a prayer that acknowledges our need that's this. Apart from you, Lord, I I can't do anything. Apart from you, my plans, they they mean nothing. On my own, Lord, I can't fix this. I can't heal the wound. I can't correct the fault. I can't clean up the mess. I can't do anything outside of you. I, I need you to act. Like, only you can do this. And when your hearts are committed to understand God more clearly, then you'll understand that he acts in this way often. And so you recognize like before you run to a friend, before you, you know, beg a teacher, before you even call mom and dad, if you would just go, hey God, I, I, I need you in this space. I can't, I'm weak, you can, and so I'm just gonna, I'm gonna run to you. And, and in that, one of the greatest things that we see college students struggle with, if you would begin to practice this, you fight against it naturally without trying. And it's this thing we call pride. If you would just understand in pretty much every space you can't, if God were just to remove his pinky from you, you would cease to exist. And so like, if we would understand that in all of our spaces God has to show up, you'll kill pride in your life if you'll go that way. And if anybody in this space had a reason to be prideful, it's probably our boy Daniel. He was set apart, 10 times smarter, looked good. I mean, they, they brought him for a reason. He was strong, he was, he was attractive, he was smart. And then he became 10 times smarter than everybody. He has a reason to be prideful and he just runs to God. All right, that's the side note. Now let's, let's see if we can run through the rest of this. There's a lot of verses left. We're gonna get them. Therefore, Daniel went to Ariok, whom the king had assigned to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He came and he said to him, don't destroy the wise men of Babylon. It's a good first word. Bring me before the king, and I will give him the interpretation. Ariok quickly brought Daniel before the king, and he said to him, I have found a man among the Judean exiles who can let the king know the interpretation. He took credit for what Daniel was doing. He's like, hey, this is mine. All right, I just found that to be funny. Verse 26, then the king said in reply to Daniel, whose name is Belshazzar, are you able to tell me the dream I had and its interpretation? And I love this, here's Daniel's honest response. Daniel answered the king, no wise man, medium, magician, or diviner is able to make known to the king the mystery he asked about. No one can do this. Verse 28, but there is a God in heaven, circle it. You have all these puny Babylonian gods here, but I have a God in heaven who reveals mysteries and he has let King Nebuchadnezzar know what will happen in the last days. Your dream and the visions that came into your mind as you lay in bed were these. Your majesty, while you're in bed, thoughts came into your mind about what will happen in the future. The revealer of mysteries has let you know what will happen. That's such a cool title, side note. The revealer of mysteries has let you know what will happen. As for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because I have more wisdom than anyone living, but in order that the interpretation might be made known to the king and that you may understand the thoughts of your mind. Okay, and so he goes from prayer to praise, response and worship, and now he is proclaiming what God has done. He's praying, he worships God, and then he proclaims. He's he's kind of following orders, but he is giving God credit for everything that's taking place here. He's proclaiming what God has done, and hear me. If you want, and it's, I'm battling this, okay? I think everybody in any space of leadership, whether you're in the secular world and you be, you're leading in, in the business world, you're leading in a classroom, you're leading in a medical field, you're a leading engineer, whatever it may be, this is one of the things that we're going to struggle with. And I think God desires to use people, and God often uses people who are honest and humble. And this is all that we see from Daniel from verse 27 all the way to 30, I can't. Verse 30, as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because I have more wisdom than anyone living. He's already been given the title 10 times smarter, but, but not because of that, but an order that the interpretation might be made known to the king and that you may understand the thoughts in your mind. Let's keep going. 31, your majesty, as you were watching, suddenly a colossal statue appeared. Here's the dream. That statue tall and dazzling was standing in front of you and its appearance was terrifying. The head of the statue was pure gold. Its chest and arms were silver. Its stomach and thighs were bronze. Its legs were iron, and its feet were partially iron and partly clay. Partly iron and partly clay. As you were watching, a stone broke off without a hand touching it, struck the statue on its feet of iron and fired clay and crushed them. Then the iron, the fired clay, the bronze, the silver, the gold were shattered and became like shaft from the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away. Not a trace of them could be found, but the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. Now he's he's beginning to, to weave this idea that we can kind of more clearly understand because I think we've walked through a lot of this interpretation. You're going to see that, um, but he's beginning to 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 birth this idea in the king's mind that God is sovereign over what he knows, he's sovereign over what he reveals, he's sovereign over what he's going to do. And the king needs to know this. Verse 36, this was the dream, now we will tell the king its interpretation. Your majesty, you are king of kings. The God of the heavens, there it is, has given you sovereignty, power, Strength and glory. Remember, he sets up kings and he tears down kings for his glory. He's giving you these things, which some people were gonna struggle with because we don't think that this king is a Christ follower. We don't think this king honors God back then. We don't think that he had a fear of God, but God has given him these things. We're gonna trust that. Verse 38. Wherever power, strength, oh, sorry, wherever people live or wild animals or birds of the sky, he has handed them over to you and made you ruler over them all. You are the head of gold. He's telling him the dream. He's basically going, you are the representative of Babylon. Babylon is really kind of that head of gold. You're the face of that. It's currently happening. More. After you, there will arise another kingdom inferior to yours. That kingdom we know as medo Persia. Rises to power in 539. It's not as strong as Babylon, but that's the kingdom. And then another, a third kingdom of bronze, which will rule the whole earth. That's Greece. It's our boy Alexander the Great. Came on the scene, ruled for about 15 years, dies. And then that kingdom lasts for what, 189 or so years during that time? Which will rule the whole earth. A fourth kingdom will be as strong as iron, for iron crushes and shatters everything. And like iron that smashes, it will crush and smash all the others. That's Rome. Rome lasted for about 1,600 years, 16 centuries in power. Verse 41 you saw the feet and the toes partly of a potter's fired clay and partly of iron. It will be a divided kingdom, though some of the strength of iron will be in it. You saw the iron mixed with clay and that the toes of the feet were, partially, were partly iron and partly fired clay. Part of the kingdom will be strong, a part of it will be brittle. You saw the iron mixed with clay. The peoples will mix with one another but will not hold together just as iron does not mix with fired clay." There's, I can read 15 different books to you about what this means, and all of them are going to be different. The meaning of this, this type of prophetic vision from this dream is uncertain, and so with humility, you have to step into this. Uh, a guy that I read, I kind of like the idea, his name is Stephen Miller, um, he, he gives these observations. First, Rome will be incredibly strong, but also vulnerable and unstable. We know that to be true with numerous nations and divisions making up its empire. Historically, this was the case. Second, although various people, groups, and nations constitute the one Roman empire, their unity was tenuous and imposed. They are mixed in their union. They're not really one, and eventually they will not hold together. And so this is true whether you date the dissolution of Rome at 80, uh, 395, 476, 1054, 1453, or 1476. Either way, we know this: Roman Empire is gone. It doesn't exist. Whether it will be revived in the last days as part of the empire led by the one the Bible calls the Antichrist or the Beast is a good and interesting question, but it is best addressed in other parts of Scripture. And so you can read this and you can draw some conclusions, but people way smarter than us have been spending a ton of time with this and still can't come to some kind of common conclusion. But we just know that this was part of his dream. Verse 44. In those days of the kings, the God of the heavens will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed and his kingdom will not be left to another people. It will crush all of those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but will itself endure forever. We know that this is a kingdom that Christ is setting up. You saw a stone break off from the mountain without a hand touching it, and it crushed the iron, the bronze, the fired clay, the silver, and the gold. The great God has told the king what will happen in the future. The dream is certain, and its interpretation reliable. Like, what a powerful ending. Standing before the king, and he goes, like, I know you're struggling to interpret this. Let me tell you, the God of the heavens is telling me what to tell you. This great God has interpreted your dream, and it is certain, and it is reliable. What are you going to do? And here's his response. It's not, are you telling me that this kingdom is going to be end? It's, it's going to be destroyed? That some, some rock from a mountain is going to move without anybody forcing it to move? Jesus? He's going to come down. He's going to destroy all of this. And when he lands, he's going to become an even bigger mountain? Is that what you're telling me? Like, at this point, the king should be irritated. Here's his response, verse 46. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell face down and worshiped Daniel. What? What? And gave orders to present an offering and incense to him. The king said to Daniel, Your God is indeed God of gods, lowercase, Lord of kings, and the revealer of mysteries, since you were able to reveal this mystery. So we know he got the dream right. We believe that the interpretation spot on. The king is happy. Then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many generous gifts. He's fulfilling his vow in verse six. He made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon and chief governor over all of the wise men of Babylon. And and here is a couple things to hold on to. When you would just practice praying, praising and responding to God in worship and then proclaiming his story to places, there are going to be moments, this is not why you do this, but this is clearly what scripture says, there are going to be moments that as you faithfully respond to God in this way, that God is going to just put you in places where you are praised, maybe where you are honored, where you are lifted up. This is not why you do this, but, but Jesus really clearly in the Sermon on the Mount says, You are a light unto the world. You are a city situated on a hill, and it cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket, but rather puts it on a lampstand and gives light to all those who are in the house in the same way. Let your light shine before others so that they would see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. He, he says clearly that as you follow me, people are going to see you. And as they see you, their response is not going to be, look at the pretty light. The response is going to be, praise God in heaven. This is what he's calling us to. And so Daniel and his friends are lights shining really brightly in this place called Babylon. And he is given this place. Like the the king is praising him, but I we believe as King Nebi falls down, face down and worships Daniel, that he's actually responding kind of to what God has done here. It's not so much that he is converted but he is just confessing that God is great. Your God is indeed the God of gods, not my God. Your God is the God of gods. He's the Lord of kings, the revealer of mysteries. He worships him, and so now Daniel's God is sharing a stage with all of these Babylonian deities, and he got the invite from the king. He didn't have to wiggle his way in there. God just did what he does, and the king says, you have a rightful place now you're going to see that echoed all throughout the book, like really for the first time in the king's life, his little God that he's put up over there, his his name is Marduk, like he now has a competitor, got a little bit of the king's attention. And this leads to Daniel's promotion. But hear me, when, when you get into that space right here, this is what God's going to do. He's going to call you to prayer. You're going to respond in worship, and he's going to give you opportunities to proclaim this. But it becomes like, A process that continues to just circle over and over again. It's just something that that it doesn't stop because when you proclaim, and this is what he does, it's not the end of the book because then, like, it starts over. And as God's story is being revealed, it's going to probably make your life a little bit even more difficult because things are going to be more challenging when lost people begin to run to you and go, hey, what about this? And what about this? And what about this? And you see dead people move to life, which is what we call discipleship. Evangelism is part of that. And you then get to walk beside them and going, let me help you take your next steps. And hear me, discipleship is difficult. Walking with people who are trying to figure out this whole thing of chasing after God with you is, is difficult. But Prayer, praise, and proclamation are the spiritual responses to crisis that shift our attention from our ability to God's in every space. And so if life is good, you pray, you praise, and then you proclaim God's goodness to others. And When life is bad, you pray, you praise him for the response, and then you proclaim his goodness to other people. Because, because here's the reality of this. God is going to humble you in spaces that are needed. He's going to put you in difficult spaces that are needed for his glory so that other people can see it. And oftentimes it happens when when life is really difficult. And so so here's the story. I I talked about this a little bit. um, And when you see the pictures coming up, I like to give the band really obvious clues. Um, When you see the pictures come up, band, you can come up. Here's the story. We just hired Ethan as our student pastor. The vote was weird, 777 to seven. Like if that's not biblical, I don't know what we're gonna do with it. Um, (laughs) We're gonna see some crazy things. Okay, nine years ago, 10 years ago almost, I was teaching with him. We served together at a camp called Super Summer. Um, And so yeah, whoop that. We're gonna put you guys to work, those that just whooped. Okay, Um, you're my people. At this camp, things are going really well serving in Sherman, Texas. Our student ministry there is exploding. We're reaching a ton of high school students, junior high students, college students. Things are going really well. All right, we, we have two incredible baby boys at that point. Well, they were three and five knuckleheads, like really giant heads running around. Um, we were spoiled. We just started an adoption process with a little girl from Haiti. Some of you know this story. We had a shower this weekend. It's been 10 years trying to get her home. And God's proven himself faithful in that. Things are just like like it's the dream. I'm living the American dream, a great job, incredible wife, incredible family, we're adopting. And like, everybody's like, y'all are doing all of this right. I'm, I'm teaching at Super Summer, which is, one of, is where I was called to ministry. It's just one of the joys of my heart. A, a couple weeks before I was playing basketball um, with a group of college professors and had this weird thing happen where I went up for a layup. And as I laid up the, the right side of my body went numb and it like, i just terribly missed the layup. They were making fun of me, like, wow, nice, nice shot. And I, and I was just like, what was that? And I just kept running, kept playing, not a big deal. Is it was like something weird happening? A couple days later, I was at my chiropractor, and I said, this, like, this is weird. I did this layup, and everything kind of went limp. And he's like, that's not good. I was like, I, okay. <laughs> Sent me to, to have a bunch of tests run. I had a, an MRI and a CAT scan done, and I'm at Super Summer, and I get a phone call from a doctor. He says, hey, don't move. I'm like, <laughs> are you robbing me? Like, what? I'm on the phone. This is a terrible play. He said, we just got the results of your MRI back, and you have two cysts in your neck. Above C3 and below C6. And if you fall down wrong, you're paralyzed. Okay, now I'm, I'm a hyperactive, playing basketball a couple times a week, wrestling with kids, really like involved in student ministry and doing a bunch of those things. I get that phone call from a guy who says, you are basically fixing to have to have a rushed surgery to try to repair what's going on inside of your body, but you cannot pick up anything, you can't run, like you have to be careful walking. In fact, I would just prefer that you sit down for the next couple of days. And a lot of my identity just began to get swept out from underneath me. So my wife and I, in fear, because I, it was a week of me not being able to pick up my kids, of them like running to me and like stiff arm them, like get back, bro. I go to this neurologist, his name's Dr. Denning, if you, if you look him up on Google, he looks like a mass murderer. Um, it, it was a terrible, like I was like, hey, that's my neurologist. I, pull, I pulled him up, I was like, that's a scary looking dude. He was a ginger, by the way. Um, that doesn't mean that he's a mass murderer. It just like, looks scary. I walk in his office and he said, hey, that, like, we're, gonna, we're gonna cut into your neck, we're gonna pull your esophagus to one side, your muscles to the other side. I'm going to hook up all these sensors to your body so I hopefully don't paralyze you. And I'm going to go inside, move your spinal cord and shave down the bone inside of your necks. Your necks, your neck bones. He said, there's a 50-50 chance I'm going to paralyze you. And my wife squeezes my hand. And I said, Dr. Denning, did you just say 50% chance you're going to paralyze me? He said, yeah, this this is the most dangerous surgery I can do. And, and we kind of leave it at that. He said, your alternative is to not have this surgery and more than likely I'm gonna see you in weeks or months dealing with a totally different issue. And so at that point he could tell like we were scared but he also has read my file. He's like, well, he's a pastor and blah, blah, blah. He said, can I pray with you? And at that point he went from like mass murderer to like, like the archangel, archangel just like glowing in front of me. like, hey, <laughs> um, he prays. And then a couple weeks later I have that surgery I wake up from that surgery and I, and, and I was like, whoa, like I could feel my hands. It had been 10 years and i lost the feeling in my hands, and my feet, and I didn't know it. We, I'm immobile for 10 weeks, I have to sit in a chair, I watch a whole lot of Netflix. I go back to the doctor and, and he does an x-ray and he goes, okay. He said, it's gonna be a little bit painful, but you can start rehab and then you can go back to normal activity. My wife goes, what, is, what does normal now look like? And he said, well, what did you do before? Said, so, well, this, 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 this. He's like, yeah, you can do all of that. You're basically Iron Man. I bolted your neck together. This, this is this is what my what my neck looks like on the on the front. I like a weird look, like six pack can, like right here. So when I when I swallow, my esophagus rubs across those screws that are in my throat still. Just doop doop doop. The the side of it looks like this. If you want to see, those are the screws into there. Those those little spaces. I also lost a tooth at youth camp. If you look at that one up there. We went, we went real hard during youth camp. Um, those little white dashes in between the screws are those half inch spaces they put on. So I got, a ta- I got an inch taller from my neck up after the surgery. This, it's, a weird, it's a weird thing to clap about. But this, this is what happened. Hear me. And I love, I love the laughter of this, I love the lightheartedness of this because God's really, really faithful. This is what happened my feet got swept out from me at Super Summer. I was bawling. My wife had already planned on being at camp, she wasn't there with us, and she drove up and I'd given her I'd, I'd called her, and, and she comes up before worship, and, and like, I just have to hold her. And she's weeping, because we're we in a, a space of just like not knowing. What, what was going on? Was life ruined? Was, was my identity of a, as a dad being taken away from me, like all of those things. And as soon as I hung up that, that first phone call. Ethan knew me well enough that he saw something on my face, and he just came over and started praying. He didn't know what he was praying for, but his instant response was, was, I don't need information. I just need to run to God, and then my wife came, and she's bawling, and he shows up again, lays hands on both of us, and just begins asking the Lord, like, for miraculous healing for that to take place, and we believe at that point, I mean, the doctor saw, like, the MRI and said, hey, there's this stuff going on, but we believe at that point, God began the healing process, that got me to the point that I am now, that that's not even an issue. I just have like a weird piece of metal in here that when I go through the security thing at the airport, they're like, "What's that? <laughs> that's where we're at. You need to have the heart and you need to surround yourself with people that their instant response is run to the Father. In good times, man, can we praise God for that? And in bad times, man, can we just run to Jesus with that? Because there are gonna be moments in your life where you can't. You're probably walking in them now. And your response is to pray, make a mental note of that prayer, a physical note of that prayer. And when God responds, you worship him, you worship your guts out to him. And then you turn and you proclaim that to people. He's not writing a story in you that's just your story. He's writing a story in you for people to see. And this is, the, this is what Daniel is declaring loudly to us. Thank you, God, that you gave me a gift. I want to use it for your glory. I want to be humble in my approach. I want to use that. And then when, it, when, you, when you bring those prayers to life, I want to proclaim it to the nations, even if it's difficult, even if it's going to cost me. That's what I want to do. And so that's our charge. Would you become that type of prayer? Would you surround yourself with people that pray that way? Would you encourage your people that are kind of in your, in your Christian bubble that the first thing you guys do instead of gathering together and like coming up with high fives and celebrating like what kind of, what kind of food you've eaten that day, you just go like, hey, what, what's God doing? Can we just give him thanks for that right quick? Our, our leadership team gra- gathers in here at 645 every day. We celebrate what God's doing. And then we, we hit pause and we pray all over this room. And it takes about three minutes. And there's part of me that sits on the step and goes, this isn't enough. Like God, you deserve more than this. And then God's just been faithful to remind me. He's like, I don't, I don't need like your big sacrifice of praise. I just need you to pay attention to me. And so our team hits pause and we pray and we ask God to invade this space. And it's actually pretty simple. And you can do the same thing if you just get in this habit of going, God, I need you, I can't. I'm gonna worship you when you respond and I'm gonna tell everybody about it. That's what Daniel's calling us to. Let me pray for you. And then let's respond in worship. God, you're good and you do good. And I I rest in that. Like there's consistent just testimony in my life, but thankfully in the lives of so many other people, I just get to see your hand moving in unbelievably powerful ways. And so may our response always be like, we need to run to you, we need to worship you and respond, I just need to tell everybody about it. May we grab that from Daniel in an unbelievable story, in an unbelievable situation and apply it to our life. Like we're we're not called to be Daniel. We're called to be faithful and pay attention to you and then tell everybody of your greatness. Would you give us the strength and the boldness to respond that way for people in the room that, that are far off from you? Uh, would your spirit spur them onto a conversation tonight that would, that would secure that in their life that they could chase after you? And maybe for those that don't know you at all, we just trust your word's powerful enough, even a story that's really directed at believers to grab the heart of an unbeliever and say, hey, I want that to be your story too. So would you draw us tonight? Would you secure some things by your spirit in our hearts? We just trust you as we respond. In Jesus' name.